Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my, well, not conservative counterpart, Professor of Law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Hi, Michael. Hey, Ken, how are you doing this afternoon? Well, you know, I had my car stolen by a policeman, but other than that, I'm doing okay. <laughs> yes, and that is a uh, – Ken filled me in before we got – we went on the air, and it is a long and involved and, as I uh, characterized it, Kafka-esque story. And I suggested to Ken that we really should do a segment on civil asset forfeiture, and uh, I think that would be a, a very interesting segment to do, especially in light of your personal experience with this now. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, but that is for uh, another time. We do have a lot to talk about on, on this show. We're going to get into the Supreme Court report on the Dobbs leak, the debt ceiling, USA to Ukraine and the whole tank issue. More on Biden's handling of classified documents, maybe even a little bit on House committee assignments. So as usual, we have a full docket here today. But before we get to that, we will take one quick break and be right at it. All right. So uh, this is, I guess, sort of an update because not too long ago on the show, I suggested to Jay that Chief Justice Roberts, to me, didn't seem to be making the Dobbs leak case that much of a priority, given the fact that he put the Supreme Court marshal, uh, who's, as far as I can tell, someone with no real investigatory background, in charge of the investigation. And uh, But this week, Marshal Gail Curley reported that, in her words, it is not possible to determine the identity of any individual who may have disclosed the document or how the draft opinion ended up with Politico. Uh, no one confessed to publicly disclosing the document and none of the available forensic and other evidence provided a basis for identifying any individual as the source of the document. But Curley did say that they viewed it as unlikely that someone from outside the court had hacked into the system and that due to COVID measures designed to, I guess, make it easier to work remotely, as well as some you know, not insignificant issues with the court's security and monitoring measures, it had become easier to remove unauthorized or sensitive material from the building without any sort of identifiable paper or electronic trail. And she reported that as part of the investigation, there were 97 interviews and that based on a preponderance of the evidence standard, they couldn't identify the leaker. And the report did not 
indicate whether or not the justice, justices themselves were interviewed as part of the investigation. So, Ken, uh, do you have any, well, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I guess you'd call it a, a non-finding uh, in a way, but well, what do you think about this investigation and the conclusion? Well, I, I think it's a finding, actually. I don't think it's a non-finding. Um, I, I would read between the lines of it that they know that it was one of the justices or perhaps one of the justices' spouses who did it, and that they know that it was nobody else who did it, hmm. and that that's about as far as they're going to um, investigate. I, I think some of the some of the language in the report was more explicit than others, but um, you know, it, it one, it, at one point in the report, when they 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 say the investigation focused on court personnel dash dash or long dash temporary uh, temporary personnel law clerks and permanent employees who had or may have had access to the draft opinion during the period from the initial circulation until the publication. Um, I feel like that language exactly is how you would say, uh, but not the justices. Right, right. Right. The, the just, yeah, yeah. So it seems like what they said is we, we, we uh, investigated very carefully, A, whether there could have been an external hack, um, or B, whether any of the court personnel, temporary or permanent, did a, 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 an internal leak. And we concluded that they didn't, right? So I think that leaves over exactly who they know did, but that's as far as the investigation was going to go. And I agree with that. And it seems, it's always seemed to me that the most plausible theory is the one, well, we're hearing again now, is that that the Chief Justice was hoping to sort of peel off Justice Kavanaugh to at least limit the decision in this instance. And uh, one of the conservative justices leaked it to try to lock Kavanaugh in, and which, which if that's the case, it, it worked. And it, that's, that's always been the most logical, straightforward explanation to me. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, that's the one that I was articulating on this show and elsewhere from day one. And I, I you know, I know in uh, in the last month or two, there was a lot of news reporting about um, Justice Alito being a big mouth and blabbing results to his friends and things like that. But I I actually still think to me, it's fairly clear that it was Virginia Thomas. I, I don't I don't think it ever I never seriously entertained the idea that it was anyone else. And I, I hmm. still think it's fairly obviously her um, because she's the only person I can think of who definitely did have access, right? Clarence Thomas, you know, could have brought home paper copies of the draft, just brought them home, and that's not going to show up on any kind of technology. So she had the access. Um, she has, uh, you know, her actual job that she does for a living, um, you know, she works at the Heritage Foundation trying to influence um, certain, you know, right-wing media to um, message in ways that she wants them to message. She's got a, a very direct line into places like the Wall Street Journal editorial page, who she talks to all the time. She's got ideologically compatible friends there. And uh, um, and this this story did leak to the Wall Street Journal before it leaked to Politico. You know, people were um, noticing the Politico leak more because it was more dramatic because Politico published the full text of the draft, which is something that the Wall Street Journal hadn't done. Um, but the Wall Street Journal, almost a week before that Politico uh, leak, um, did publish an op-ed um, where everything that you just said was in the op-ed, right? I mean, the, the Wall Street Journal op-ed said, right. mm -hmm. um, you know, it's our guess. It seems to us that probably what's going on at the court with the Dobbs decision is that probably one of the conservative justices, maybe Justice Alito, um, has probably drafted a draft that overrules Roe versus Wade entirely. And and probably um, Chief Justice Roberts is is trying to peel off some of the 
the, the less conservative judge, justices and tell them that they can um, sustain the Mississippi law at issue without going all the way to overruling Roe and tr- trying to get them to do that. And probably, pro- you know, what we think, you know, based on all that is that um, uh, these, 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 these other conservative justices need to get a backbone and vote for the uh, Alito draft. You know, I mean, it, it said all that in the, in the Wall Street Journal yeah. editorial mm-hmm. that was uh, a few days before the leak. And so that, you know, um, I feel like Virginia Thomas has got to be the person who, who planted that there. And I think her general modus operandi, and you're seeing it again in connection with the January 6th stuff, is that she's sneaky and dishonest, and that's the way she operates. <laughs> yeah, well, she she certainly is a loose cannon, I, I would say, and is, doesn't feel bound by the sort of tradition and these strictures and procedures and so forth that have, that have held sway at the court for so long. So I, guess would, also, I, I would also think that it would be – I don't know that interviewing the justices would have accomplished anything because uh, I, I would assume, obviously, if one of the justices either leaked the document or had a spouse or close family member who did, they certainly would have said, oh, yes, you know, by the way, my wife leaked the document. Thank you for asking. I'm only telling you this because I'm, you know, you, you've asked me directly. So I don't know that it's that big of a deal that the justices weren't questioned, but maybe you see that maybe you see that differently. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think if they would have asked Justice Thomas if he knew anything about this, he, he just would have denied it. But um, but, you know, I think the thing is they, they could have interviewed Virginia Thomas. I don't think they did. There's nothing in the report that says they interviewed people who don't work for the court. Right. Um, you know, they, they said they, they only interview people from the court. They, they could have interviewed the, the Wall Street Journal editorial writers a lot more and tried to you know, get them to answer questions about, you know, how they knew so much at, at the time. You know, so I, I think there are ways um, that they could have pursued that line of inquiry if, if they wanted to. Um, I don't know that they could have proved a case against Virginia Thomas, but I don't I don't believe they investigated it. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but there is no federal shield law. So any sort of a government investigation or at least criminal investigation uh, into that would not have a- allowed the Wall Street Journal reporters to to uh, plead confidentiality uh, according to any sort of you know, legal protection. Right. Well, you know, one of the things about the Marshal Service doing this is um, I don't think it was a criminal investigation. And yeah, the the Marshal Service uh, begins with a lot of sources of law that it says it have been violated here. But all of those sources of law are like personnel manuals and things like that, where, you know, violation of that would be maybe a firing offense for some kinds of employees, but it wouldn't be a criminal offense. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know that, um, you know, I don't know that they, they could have done that much about it. Um, if if the Wall Street Journal editorial page writers just you know said you know we're we're, we're taking the fifth we're not talking to you but um, you know on the other hand maybe they couldn't take the fifth maybe they could have been compelled to to talk because if there's no crimes if it's not even alleged that any of these leaks could be crimes right. then um, in in a in a civil case there's no real grounds for um, invoking the Fifth Amendment. So I don't know. I don't know a lot about uh, what tools would have been available to them and what tools wouldn't have been available to them. But from the tenor of the report, it just seems like they focused really on court court personnel and not um, yeah. on trying to look outside the court. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think uh, given everything we know, and of course, there's plenty we don't know, but given everything we do know, it seems the most kind of Occam's razor sort of solution to this is that Justice Thomas brought home the papers either intentionally or accidentally gave access to them to his wife, those papers, and she went to her friends at the Wall Street Journal editorial board. That I, I can't think of anything that's more yep. simple and straightforward as an explanation than that. 
So there we are. Yeah, that's what I think it is. I mean, the, the other one that I've heard, you know, I, I have heard a lot of people, uh, you know, agree with the general tenor of what you and I are saying, but but believe that it was actually Alito rather than Thomas. And, uh, you know, there, you, you saw the news reporting um, about him blabbing mm-hmm. the Hobby Lobby result to his friends before before the case came out. But um, I, I, the, the strongest argument I've heard in that direction that it was him is that he attends quite a lot of um, like federal society events and things like that. And so um, even though he might not have the same direct lines into um, editorial boardrooms that that Virginia Thomas has, um, he's constantly interacting with people who could be intermediaries for that kind of thing. So if he if he brought a paper copy of the draft with him somewhere at one of his many public appearances, um, he could have slipped it to somebody if he wanted to. But I'll tell you, I, I, I reject that theory. I think the Virginia Thomas theory is more likely because I even think the reporting on the on his leaks of the Hobby Lobby case, it really seemed to me like the nature of that leak is like that he's just either like showing off to his friends or that he, um, you know, just couldn't stop himself from from telling them yep. that. But that, he, but it was kind of accompanied, like with you know the friends that he leaked it to. He's like telling them, you know, don't tell uh-huh. anyone. Yeah, sure. And by all account, and by by all accounts, they didn't tell anyone. You know, it just came out a lot later. So I think that's a different kind of problem than someone intentionally leaking to the media, not just to their friends. Right. You know, for the purpose of influencing the court. You know, and, and I think that's what we were seeing here. Yeah, and in fact, in the report, uh, the uh, the marshal indicated that they found out that there were a few people who had, I believe, there were eighty two people who had access to the draft, and a few of them did tell their spouses. And, and I think you would just expect a certain amount of, of that. But you're right; that's an entirely different sort of thing than leaking directly to the media. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's why I don't really read much in the fact that Alito had done that kind yeah, of thing before. I, 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 I don't I don't think to me that that points the finger at Alito. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, the debt ceiling, because uh, that's certainly been a big story in the news for most of this week. That's, of course, the federal government's legislatively imposed borrowing limit. And, then, you know, thirty one point three eight one trillion. Well, that's that's a lot of money. But uh, this week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said we are hard up against it, and she will begin implementing extraordinary measures so that the United States can keep on paying its bills. And, you know, extraordinary measures sounds bad, but I would pronounce it more like extraordinary as opposed to extraordinary. And, you know, <laughs> it's it's basically holding off paying into government workers' retirement funds and health care funds. And Congress has given Treasury the authority to do that. And then in the past, and this has happened a bunch of times, when the debt ceiling is raised, the government repays its IOUs to itself, essentially. And, and doing that gives us just short of a trillion dollars or so of wiggle room, and that should be enough to get through until sometime this summer. And then Congress will either have to pass legislation that raises the debt ceiling or you know, not do that, meaning that the government starts defaulting on its debt to external creditors, which is a whole different deal. Um, so a little bit of history here. The debt ceiling is hasn't been around forever. It was created by Congress as part of the Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917. So that's quite a while. Um, and prior to that, the limits on government borrowing were a lot stricter. So this was seen as a way to basically give the government more flexibility while still ensuring that Congress maintains uh, ultimate control over government borrowing authority. And, you know, debt's been pretty much constant in the history of the United States for I think there's only one year that there hasn't been some sort of fluctuating national debt, though since Hoover's time, it's gone 
up and up and up. And that meant a lot of debt ceiling increases. In fact, I think there have been close to 100 of them in total, but most of them have not been anything close to high drama. You get large majorities who essentially believe that the consequences of defaulting on any part of the public debt or even really kind of flirting with the idea would far outweigh any sort of political advantage from not raising the debt ceiling. But then the calculus changes in the 21st century, at least for some House Republicans, who basically see opposition to raising the debt ceiling as a way to extract promises of lower spending in the future, or sometimes in cuts promised in the very near future. In fact, in 2011, that resulted in a bipartisan deal to raise the ceiling by $900 billion in return for $917 billion in spending cuts over the next decade, though a lot of those cuts didn't actually materialize. And that's in no small part because the current Congress cannot bind the spending decisions of future Congresses. So that kind of gets us up to this current crisis. And, you know, Ken, on a recent episode, Jay and I both were of the opinion that this would end up working out, that there's a small group of House Republicans that are really trying to leverage this for all it's worth. But in the end, cooler heads are going to prevail and we're going to get some sort of a deal. We we both basically agreed with Mitch McConnell, who this week said, the, you know, we'll, we'll end up in some kind of negotiation with the administration over what the circumstances or conditions are, but the U.S. will never default on its debt. So what do you think? I don't agree with that. Um, I, I think that there, there will be a default. I wow. think it'll be very short, short lived. Um, I, I think there'll be I think there'll be a day or two where um, and I think this did happen once in 1979, although only for hours. Um, but I think I think here it might go on a couple of days um, where there will actually be a debt default before it gets resolved. Um, and uh, the reason I say that is I think the the lessons that the Democrats and the Republicans took from past standoffs are so diametrically opposed to one another, um, you know, that, that I, I don't see room for, um, you know, for, for, for either side to back down now. You know, I, I think the, the Republicans took from the lessons of their, their stand, showdowns with uh, Obama. You remember the, the showdown that led to the sequester? I, I think the Republicans considered that to be a victory for them, you know, that they actually were, were able to force um, Obama through their threats of just shutting down the government and breaching the debt ceiling to agree to the sequester, which put, you know, it, it, I mean, it was cuts on both Republican spending priorities and Democratic spending priorities. But the key is that it was more of a, it was only a Republican priority to put um, limits on, on, on spending in that yeah. way. And so they and so they they succeeded. Um, now, I think more recently, um, when you saw the 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 showdown with the um, uh, Democrats and, and Trump over whether uh, money would go for the wall, um, and 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 the, the Democrats just said we're we're never going to negotiate with uh, Trump about this. And the government, it wasn't a debt ceiling at that time; it was just a temporary government shutdown. But the government stayed shut down um, for a couple of weeks before um, Trump caved. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that um, so both of them are looking at these this history. And, and the Republicans are looking back at the sequester events and saying, you know, if we if we don't flinch, then we're going to get something out of this. And uh, the Democrats are looking back at these episodes and saying, no, the lesson is that you don't negotiate with terrorists. And uh, um, and I think that both are going to stand by the logic of, of, of that position um, into an actual uh, debt ceiling uh, controversy. I don't see which side would back down. I think they both think that these are now 
settled matters of how you need to proceed. No, I, I, that that makes sense to me. I mean, certainly the positions of the Biden administration has been very, very clear on their complete lack of interest in negotiating this. And, and Speaker McCarthy has also been very clear that this should be you know, part of a negotiation. Of course, this falls, this will fall right in the middle of uh, the F, the fiscal year 2024 budget, uh, the president's budgets due to Congress uh, first Monday in February. That's sometimes a little late, but the point being is that they will be at least at some point in budget negotiations. So I think they see this timing as uh, fortuitous, I guess. And and so I guess I agree with the logic, but I but I also think that the consequences of even a short default will be sharp enough uh, so that so that more of that will fall on Republicans than Democrats. And there'll be enough Republicans who will agree with that. If they have to force the matter, they, they can, you know, certainly force the matter in, in a number of ways. Uh, we talked about the the discharge petition last time. Now, that's I mean, that's kind of a last resort thing, I guess, just because when you take a look at the time frame for that, basically for that to work, uh, it would take three, three, three months or more, essentially, because of how it's how it's structured, how long it needs to be in committee, how many legislative days, that sort of thing. But in the end, I think that we'll see a measure in committee before then. And I would hope that if there's no clarity on that, that they could they could move forward with that to avoid a default altogether. And I think uh, I think something along, along those lines should happen. But that's that's my prediction. My, my prediction for an end game is um, one of two things I think is going to happen after we actually do have a default. Um, either, you know, the, 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 the administration will just use um, some methods to, to end it without Congress. Um, you know, so, you know, we've heard about these various methods, either, um, you know, minting the trillion dollar coin or, um, you know, going to the Supreme Court and relying on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to say it's it's unconstitutional not to pay the debt. But I think they may seek some resolution to end, to end the, def- the period of default that doesn't involve reaching a deal with Congress. Um, or uh, conversely, I think if, if they don't do that, um, Congress is going to have to back down, and the, the the White House has the upper hand here because um, the pain that will be inflicted on the country in every way um, will be, um, you know, just getting worse and worse every day. And I think it will be easier and easier to blame it all on uh, Congress, uh, you know, that they're the ones who won't lift lift the debt ceiling, and that's all they need to do is lift the debt ceiling. And I and so I, I think those are the two possible ends, but I don't see a negotiated uh, settlement being the end. Well, and and I think I think you're right. I guess we just disagree as to how soon enough people on enough Republicans in the House specifically will will give in to that logic. Uh, because you're right. I mean, the consequences of a default. There was this Moody's Analytics report from 2021 that talked about you know GDP decline of up to four percent, the 15 trillion dollars in lost household income. This is this is like a very, very big deal. And I, I think that, yeah, maybe there are a few votes there, but uh, I think that Kevin McCarthy and the leadership, they're, they're savvy enough to understand that the long-term ramifications for Republicans are dire enough that they'll do what they need to do and to squelch their radicals uh, on this particular issue. 
It'll cost him his speakership if he does that, and I'm not sure he's got the courage to do that. Well, I, okay. so so wait, if we're betting on the courage of Kevin McCarthy, geez, now now I'm wondering about my my calculations on this exactly. <laughs> so, but I'm going to stick with I'm going to stick with Kevin McCarthy on this. I think in the end, it's not so much. Well, maybe it is courage, but that, that's an, that's a good point. But but I think in the end. It won't come to a discharge petition. It won't come to a default, and there'll just be some kind of last-minute, well, I, you know, I hate the word caving in, right, because that's sort of a, a negative connotation. Seeing seeing logic, seeing the light, I guess, understanding that, you know, it's you, you don't destroy the country just to kind of march, try to marginally advance your brand, especially when it's not even going to work. So, so I just hope that the White House stays resolute and there is no move toward negotiation because even in – a worst case scenario that still doesn't solve the larger issue of what happens the next time the debt ceiling comes around. And so I think it's critically important for the White House to make it clear that, hey, once you've decided to authorize this spending, paying your bills is not an option, essentially. And I think that's right. that's an argument that the American public understands. I'm skeptical as you mentioned some of these ways, these sort of gimmicky ways of getting around it without a deal like that trillion dollar coin thing for people who yeah. don't know. I don't I don't think they're going to do the trillion dollar coin. I think they may well go to court because there's a never tested argument that it's unconstitutional to have a debt ceiling because um uh section 3 of the 14th amendment um requires that the the uh the the obligations of the United States yeah. be honored and respected. And uh you know, I mean at the time after the Civil War, I think the concept there was to say that um Union war bonds have to be honored. Confederate war bonds can't be honored. Yeah. And we, we've never really been in a situation where that's been litigated because the the U.S. has always honored its bond obligations. But um, I think that's a that's a realistic chance that the administration would go to court and try to make an argument under that never used section of the Constitution. But I agree with you. It's less realistic that they're going to do something as gimmicky as mint a trillion dollar coin. Yeah. And both both uh, Biden and uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen have. Uh, called it publicly a gimmick. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening. And even, even let's say it did, I, I see how this playing out where, where they say, well, you know, the, the Congress gave us, gave us the ability to mint commemorative platinum coins. And so, okay, we're doing this. Uh, I, I predict the Supreme Court would roll out the major questions doctrine and say, well, you know, you know, no, <laughs> yeah. you can't, you can't do that. You know, that the Congress clearly did not authorize such sweeping uh, action sort of thing. But, but, but yeah. Um, yeah, that, right. That's, that's one more reason that they're not really going to do that. Yeah. And, you know, on the public debt clause of the 14th Amendment, I wonder, though, if the court might see this as a political question and not want to step in the middle of something this big. No, they, they'd have to step into it. Um, uh, the political question doctrine um, does get triggered in cases where um, the text of the Constitution commits um, a, a judgment, um, you know, of, in an individual matter that that, that um, otherwise might be in court, um, commits that to um, uh, one of the, the political branches. So something like an impeachment, you know, an impeachment is a trial. Gotcha. Okay. We might usually we might usually think of trials as being something that happens in the court, but since the Constitution tells us that that's a trial that happens in the Senate, um, that means that it doesn't happen in a court, and courts don't have jurisdiction. But I don't think there's any trial-like aspect of um, this this dispute about Section Three, so I don't think it would be a proper case to invoke the political question doctrine. Got it. So you you don't see there being any way that the court could sidestep this issue, even if even if they wanted to, the courts. 
Well, I mean, if they really wanted to, the, I probably think their best way to sidestep it would be to use my my uh, you know my eternal bugbear, uh, their doctrines of standing. <laughs> standing like, yeah. I, I think they, they they have these in, intensely manipulable doctrines of yes. standing, where you know when there's a case they want to hear, they hear it. And when there's a case that they don't want to hear, they say, "Well, nobody has standing to bring that case." And I think that's a more more um, realistic path than than political question doctrine. But I, I think um, I know I don't think they would duck it. I think they would take gotcha. it. Right. And and finally, I should point out, in, in case anyone was interested, there is only one other developed country that has a debt ceiling. That's Denmark, and they don't use it anywhere in this sort of way. So a debt ceiling is sort of a uniquely U.S. sort of thing. And I've said for a long time that I think I, I would certainly be in favor of the debt ceiling being abolished entirely. I don't think I've ever asked you, Ken, about your opinion on that. Um, uh, but yeah, I would get rid of the debt ceiling. I think it, it's 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 idiotic. I mean, you know, these this is money that Congress has already appropriated and, you know, and, and already made obligations to spend. Um, I think they just have to pay the bills. Yep, absolutely. All right, moving on, let's talk a little bit about the latest U.S. aid package to Ukraine, because Russia's invasion is getting close to that one-year mark now, and uh, the U.S. is uh, uh, announcing a big new weapons package. It's going to include more ammunition, artillery, armor, uh, a bunch of striker vehicles, some some Bradleys, though not the M1 Abrams main battle tank, which has been something that Ukraine has been asking for for quite a while. It's one of the most sophisticated tanks in the world, and it's way more advanced than just about anything that Russia can put in the field. But there are a couple of concerns potentially with sending tanks to Ukraine. Uh, one of them, at least a stated concern, is logistical and maintenance issues, and that's the idea that, well, these these Abrams tanks, they're very sophisticated. They take a lot in terms of maintenance. They prefer a special type of essentially aviation jet fuel, and they're super gas guzzlers, and so that would create certain problems, though uh, – I should point out that I believe it's the Australians who have the M1 Abrams. They use it to burn diesel because it can burn all kinds of fuels and they don't seem to have many problems. I, I'm, I'm maybe a little skeptical on the it's too sophisticated thing and it needs jet fuel. They seem to White House spokespeople or defense spokespeople seem to love to point out the it runs on jet fuel sort of thing. But uh, I think it's a little bit of a misdirection. Uh, I should also point out that last week, the uh, UK said it would send 14 of its 227 Challenger 2 tanks to Ukraine. And those are very advanced main battle tanks. And the big issue now is whether or not Germany will not just send any of its Leopard 2 tanks, which rank right up there with the Abrams in terms of sophistication, but if they will allow any other NATO countries to do that because of various agreements, there are a bunch of NATO countries that use the Leopard 2s, but Germany controls the export licenses and ability of other countries to send them. And to this point, Germany first, well, first they said, we're not going to do it unless the U.S. sends the Abrams, but there's been a lot more pressure put on Germany in their latest statements as of, in fact, earlier today, we're recording this on Friday, January 20th, that uh, they haven't ruled it out exactly. So uh, that's kind of where we're at with, with that. And the other issue is, well, escalation. And there are concerns, certainly with Germany and with the U.S., that providing sophisticated 
uh, armor would perhaps cause more escalation in the battle. Uh, and it's the same issue for longer range uh, missiles like the Army Tactical Missile, missile System, which uh, Ukraine has wanted for a long time to reach behind Russian lines in the Donbass region, in the Crimea. But there's concerns that, well, that could also reach into Russia itself, and they don't want to apparently antagonize Vladimir Putin, though I don't know, honestly, how much more antagonized he could get. Anyway, um, Ken, what do you think? I guess the main question uh, I'm wondering about is, do you think that the U.S. and U.S. allies are doing enough here? You know, I I am not, um, when we're talking about types of weaponry, you know, I'm reading the same news reports you are, but, you know, unlike you, I was not in the military. I'm not an expert in weapons systems, and and I don't have a background to bring to bear on this. But um, so I, I really feel like I, I could speak in generalities, but not about the specifics of how to apply those generalities to particular weapons systems. But I uh, I, I think that the, the Biden administration, at least as they state their general policy, which is to um, provide about as much military aid as we can without anybody characterizing it as though the United States has actually engaged in a military action against Russia, um, seems like the right stance to me. I, I you know, whether, whether these current actions that you were just talking about are, are properly calibrated to that policy, I'd really have to leave that to you to educate me about that. Yeah, you know, I, I disagree, I guess, on the general position of the Biden administration on here. It, it seems to me that we've had sort of a pattern since almost, well, in the last year of kind of slowly and grudgingly giving Ukraine more and more just enough, we think, to kind of let them hold the line or blunt, you know, uh, Russian advances or potential advances. And and this is, it seems to me, the sort of logic sort of thinking that you could make a reasonable case got us into this position in the first place, that if we had been more willing to give Ukraine the aid it said it needed in late in 2021 and early in 2022, but we said, well, we can't do that because it might, you know, encourage Putin. And well, you know, <laughs> Putin was encouraged. And I, I would argue that, that what we need to do is give, give Ukraine everything, it, practically everything it asked for. I, I do not think that that Putin can be much more uh, engaged in the battle than he is. And I think it just would make a lot more sense, both in, both economically and in terms of human suffering and human and deaths to just give Ukraine a whole bunch of aid so they can actually push Russian forces out and make it clear once and for all to Putin, the resolve of the West and the fact that there is simply no way that Putin, that dictator Putin, that Russia is going to be able to win in Ukraine without engaging in actions that would surely lead to massive destruction and in Russia itself and Putin losing far more than he ever hoped to gain. That's kind of my take. Well, everything about that sounds right to me, and you could well be right. But the one part I guess you left out is that um, Russia is a nuclear power and we don't want to be going to a nuclear war. And I guess the question is, you know, is there a line where if we throw everything we've got in favor of Ukraine to help push out Russia um, and Russia perceives it as though the U.S. Army has has attacked Russian forces, um, is that is there a line we could cross where we'd be really uh, playing with fire in terms of provoking a nuclear war? Yeah, to me, to me, the line is 
actually using U.S. personnel operating U.S. equipment. I mean, we what what's you know what's the calculus between say fifty something Bradleys and ten Abrams? I mean, it, it's it. We are in effect. I, this is where I actually agree with Russia. We are in effect engaged in a war against Russia. It's a proxy war yeah, militarily. It's an economic war. But there's no no question we're doing that. And so as long as I feel as as long as we do not directly engage, I honestly I don't think we're going to do anything that would provoke uh, Putin enough to. Uh, unleash weapons of mass destruction that I, I think he knows would end up backfiring on him because there's no way that we could not respond massively to that. And in thinking about what a strategic calculation could be, I don't see how he envisions a world in which he ends up better off in that scenario. But I do think he easily envisions a world in which he keeps on chipping away at Western resolve and ends up better in that scenario. And so a massive show of resolve, I think, is exactly what we should have done in retrospect in late 2021 and something it's still not too late to do before the almost assured of Russian spring offensive. And that's that's my take on that. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I, I can't disagree. I think you, you could well be right. But the one part I'd want to kind of probe a little bit more is, so you, you, um, you know, you talked about, you know, as part of the analysis you just laid out. Well, if he uses nuclear weapons, he, he must know that we're going to use them back because we will, right? And so you're taking that as a given. But, but yet, I think the same logic could be applied as, um, you know, well, if we, you know, send intercontinental ballistic missiles to Ukraine. And they use them to fire into Russia, um, you know. Then, you know, what 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 choice would he have but sure. to, but to retaliate in kind, right? And so, um, so just like you're saying, we'd have no choice but to retaliate in kind if he used weapons of mass destruction. You know, he'd probably be thinking, well, I've got no choice but to retaliate in kind if if um, if the U.S. gives Ukraine these weapons that they can actually fire into Russia, not just use in Ukraine to try to expel Russian troops from Ukraine. So I, I feel like that, that your answer isn't quite. Yeah. I, well, I, I, no, that's a good point. That no, I, that's yeah. a good point. And I think you can fairly make a distinction between providing, uh, providing Ukraine with armor, which is very, I mean, it's not, it's not like tanks can fire, you know, miles and miles and miles. It's not like we're talking hundreds of miles or anything like that. That's strictly for very local fighting. It's another thing yeah. to uh, supply them with missile systems that can reach potentially into Russia. And, and I think that way, you know, if we say, well, uh, Ukraine is asking for something like 300 main battle tanks from you know Western powers. And well, even if they got all 300 of those that they wanted and West, the West could provide them with that many, that still wouldn't pose a threat, the sort of threat to the Russian homeland that uh, that the uh, army, uh, the army missile system that they're looking for, the other missile systems that they're looking for. Would. So I, I agree that those two things maybe we should talk about separately. And I'm a little more inclined to agree with that logic on the missiles than I am with on the on the armor. Yeah, I think you and I are converging on the same position now, so that's good. All right. Well, converging on the same position is often a good time to stop, I think. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so well, why don't we move on to, well, something we, we talked about last week, actually, on the show. Jay and I brought up the, the classified documents that President Biden had retained at his home and office uh, unlawfully. And since then, 
Uh, Richard Sauber, who's a special counsel to President Biden, not investigating President Biden. I want to make that clear, but his title is special counsel. He released a statement saying that five additional pages of classified documents were found in, in the process of transferring those documents over. And that brings the total of Biden classified documents that are that were improperly held to somewhere around 20 by the best counts that we have. And after being criticized for possibly withholding information concerning the documents, the White House this week uh, became more communicative. They took questions from reporters about the materials. There was a, a senior advisor who said, well, we're trying to strike a balance here between giving the media explanations without compromising the investigation of the special counsel. Uh, I find it a little bit shaky of a argument, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and Biden himself said uh, on Thursday, speaking to reporters, I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do, which to me brings back visions of comments like there was no controlling legal authority or it depends on what the definition yeah. of the is, is. And so anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ken, well, what's, what's your take on, on the case so far, including kind of how the White House seems to have responded to these media inquiries? Well, I think uh, I don't think that President Biden's in any legal jeopardy at all. But I think his um, yeah, his 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 media responses have have not uh, been ideal. And really, you know, the fact that he took home these these documents um, is not ideal. I mean, the, the underlying facts are not ideal either. So I, I think uh, um, I don't think there's any comparison whatsoever between the, the Biden documents case and the Trump documents case. I mean, we we only even know there is a Biden documents case because the Biden administration seemingly of its own volition, Biden staffers found these documents and upon finding them, turned them over to the National Archives. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like the National Archives were, you know, sending them dunning letters saying, you know, return, return these government documents. And they were saying, no, no, we never will. Uh, you know, it's nothing like that. But 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 I don't think they should have taken the documents. I think they should have returned them sooner. Um, and, you know, I think it's a judgment call whether. Um, you know, if they inadvertently took documents that they shouldn't have and then they discovered that and then they returned them. I think it's a judgment call whether they, they needed to have a press conference about that or not. But but I would say once they had a press conference about that, they, they should have come clean about all, all the documents that that applied to and not just let it keep coming out in, in dribs and drabs. Yeah. So it, it is going to be a political problem. Um, uh, I, I don't you know, I can't you know, even though um, once again, we get our millionth you know, partisan Republican special counsel. And, and you know, that's how they all are. I, I think even this guy is not going to is not going to recommend uh, that that um, that Biden violate any laws. Yeah. And and I, I think as a response, as responses go, uh, I have no regrets. That's, you know, I, I, a presidential response, I think, in this instance should have been, you know what, we, we screwed up in the process of the transition. There were some documents I should have returned or had returned and didn't. And as soon as I found out, I took care of it and not I'm following what the lawyers told me to do. That was a horrible response. Yes, so, that's uh, stupid. No, another thing is, I, I think, I don't know what's in these documents. We don't know, but there's actually probably, um, I mean, there's only two possibilities, I guess, because we truly don't know. But I'm going to hope that there's nothing in those documents that's, you know, very, that has very serious um, confidentiality concerns or national security concerns. And, you know, if, if my hope is right and Biden knows, of course, if it is or isn't, uh, 
He should just declassify them. Yes. Yeah. He he should say, look, you know, I I did take these classified documents. I didn't realize that they were classified. I didn't realize it was a big deal. Let's let the whole country see what was in Uh them. And then you'll see that it wasn't a big deal. You know, now, of course, he he can only do that, you know, if if my optimistic hope is right, that that's that these are the kind of documents that can be declassified. And, uh, you know, if they're not, you know, I think maybe a little bit more explanation is yeah. even owed about, you know, how it happened that he took them. Yeah. Or or if uh, he said, well, I've declassified 15 of them, you know, well, what about that? Just makes it yeah, even look, yeah. look what, even what worse, the, basically. So. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you yeah. know, but but this is related to a larger issue, I think, uh, in that that issue of some people are calling overclassification, which it's not necessarily through bad intent, if you think about it, if there's going to be a judgment call, whether you should classify or something or not, the safer bet is always, well, let's just go ahead and classify it. Uh, but and then, but you keep on doing that, and the bar just keeps on incrementally getting lower as to what's worthy of being classified. And now you get a case where where it's something like 50 million government documents being classified every year that we don't know because even the government doesn't have really good records, accurate records on exactly how many classified documents there are. And, you know, there is a policy to sort of routinely declassify everything almost everything after 25 years, although some people said 25 years seems like way too long. It should be something like 10 years. And I certainly agree there's a problem with overclassification, but I don't think it's a problem that is necessarily uh, amenable to any sort of simple legislative or executive rule sort of solution. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's. Uh, um, I mean, there, maybe, maybe I think the, the thing you said about having a, a presumptive sunset window where anything that's classified gets declassified unless somebody makes a contemporary decision after actually reading it yeah. to, to reclassify it. Um, I think that would be a good prophylactic, although I don't know, you know, it might just be that, you know, officials in that position would just make the decision to reclassify without even reading it and just say that they read it or something like that. So I don't know how effective that would be, but I, I generally think sunshine is the good disinfectant and that we don't need uh, um, nearly as many documents classified as are. Yeah. And, and I, and I certainly agree with you that there are so many differences between this case and the Trump case. Uh, although certainly there, there are partisans who are trying to, uh, trying to argue or trying to pretend those differences don't exist. There was a, just after this broke, there was a tweet from Jim Jordan saying, where's the raid? It's like, of course, people responded, well, you know, if you just give up the documents voluntarily, the FBI doesn't actually have to raid your house. Right, exactly. I don't think it's too likely Jim Jordan did not understand that that, that legal issue there. So, (laughs) by the way, a guy who's, you know, on the House Oversight Committee and leading an investigation on, uh, anyway, that's, yeah. Jim Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know how I feel about Jim Jordan. And especially because, yes. you know, there was a time in the not too distant past where he was enough of a, I, I would call him a respectable figure, even be a guest on the politics guys. And I almost got well, anyway. That's, what? Yeah. Jim I didn't Jordan. know that. You you interviewed Jim Jordan? Well, Jay interviewed Jim Jordan, actually. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, he was, uh-huh. yeah, he was on the show, I should say. So yeah, that's a dubious, <laughs> I don't know, distinction for us. Anyway, anyway, speaking of Jim Jordan and committees. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because uh, over the last week, the House has started to fill its 20 standing committees, or I guess 21 if you count the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. 
They've also, I should point out, disbanded four select committees that were in the 117th Congress. That hasn't gotten as much press, but I wanted to mention that. Those are the select committees on the climate crisis, economic disparity and fairness and growth, modernization in Congress, and, of course, the January 6th committee. And so now I can hear some people thinking, so does that mean that Republicans in the House are not interested in the climate crisis, economic disparities and growth, modernization of Congress, and uh, the January 6th uh, incursion in the Capitol? Well, draw your own conclusions uh, about that, certainly. But uh, anyway, last week, Jay and I discussed Speaker McCarthy's repeated promises to not reappoint Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell to the Intelligence Committee or Ilan Omar to the Foreign Affairs Committee. But this week, I thought we'd focus not on who isn't going to be on committees, but who has been named to committees and what that might potentially tell us about how the House is going to operate. So, Ken, I know you had a chance to kind of take a look at some of these initial committee assignments. What are your initial thoughts? Is there anything you take away from this? Well, I mean, I'm not surprised by any of it. Um, that is what a lot of the uh, um, the drama that we witnessed uh, during the 15 ballots it took to elect uh, McCarthy as speaker uh, was all about, that that these uh, sort of far-right uh, backbenchers um, wanted to be jumped ahead in line uh, to get um, good committee assignments or even committee chairmanships that they otherwise wouldn't really have been entitled to. And they were able to um, exert that leverage, and they got what they wanted. Yeah, I, I I certainly would agree with that. You know, some of the, I guess some of the uh, some of the assignments are interesting. One, one, I should point out that for the first time, not for the first time, but for the first time in a little bit, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar are now back on committees. They were stripped of all their committee assignments in the in the hundred seventeenth Congress, and then. It was interesting to me, the membership of the Oversight Committee, Jim Jordan's back on it. He, he'd been on that previously. Uh, Andy Biggs is also uh, an interesting kind of far right guy. But then you have newly appointed members, including, well, Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren and Boebert. And these are these are people who, at first glance, you think, well, geez, uh, these are not necessarily the people we want on the Oversight Committee. But I should point out that kind of traditionally, the House Oversight Committee has kind of attracted the more extreme elements on both sides. There's one uh, top Hill staffer who, who's called it, characterized it as a dumping ground for the less serious members. And I, you could make a case on that. I think people on the right will say that's where AOC, uh, Rashid Tlaib, Cory Bush have been committee members in the past. But I would also argue, though, that Given the fact that Republicans are going to be unable to pass any kind of significant legislation or at least get it enacted into law, oversight's going to be a much bigger deal, I think, in this Congress. And so maybe that matters a little bit more than it would in other circumstances. What do you think about that, Ken? Yeah, it's certainly going to be where all the energy and all the activity um, is. Now, I mean, maybe in a way that's, you know, just saying that, you know, in the in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king or something. But, uh, you know, that, that we're going to we're going to have a lot of um, kind of dysfunctional committees. Um, even when the committees can function, we're going to have them recommending bills that actually won't even pass on the floor. Um, or if they somehow do pass on the floor, there's there's not going to be any they're not going to be taken up in the Senate. I think sort of it's, it's, it's there's such such a uh, complete expectation that this will be a, a Congress that if, if it's lucky, it'll be functional enough to either avert a, a, a government shutdown and a debt ceiling crisis or maybe not even quite do that. But it, but it isn't going to do anything else. So in that context, the, the kind of bread and circus of these oversight hearings 
is going to be the most visible thing that that's going on. And, you know, I think we'll, we'll sort of see the Senate and the House, you know, not cooperating on legislation, but, you know, each pursuing kind of their own independent paths where I think investigations is all the House is really going to be doing. And uh, I hope uh, uh, confirmations is all that the Senate's yeah. really going to be doing. And they're just going to be confirming a lot of judges and confirming a lot of mid-level and low-level um, executive branch nominees and, and staffing up the executive and judicial branches. And, you know, that's the main thing they can do uh, without um, having to worry about the House. Yeah, And, and you, I, I am a little bit more optimistic about the possibilities for bipartisan legislation aside from, and that's what it'll have to be, obviously, uh, aside from the debt ceiling and the budget. I think there's a reasonable possibility there will be more aid for Ukraine when the current funding runs out, and it'll be sometime this year, I believe. And I also think that it's possible that we might see some uh, bipartisan consensus behind various anti-China sort of things. We saw that in the last Congress, less likely maybe than it was in the 117th Congress. But I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year and a half or so they come out with maybe uh, three, four, five, probably not as many as half a dozen uh, meaningful uh, bills that, that end up on President Biden's desk that he can sign. So yeah, you think I'm being far too optimistic, don't you? Yeah, but I hope you're right. And, uh, um, you know, nothing's impossible. And, uh, um, you know, maybe that'll happen, but I'd bet against it. And, and, and I guess I think the most important, well, I would argue one of the most important things uh, because of the urgency aside from the debt ceiling and and the budget, is aid to Ukraine. And I think in the past, you've, you've suggested that, very strongly suggested that you didn't think that there would be the votes in the House to pass additional aid for Ukraine. I, I don't want to mischaracterize. Is that, is that, was that your position? And if so? Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, I, I, I'll include within that that maybe they'll pass something that looks like aid to Ukraine, but it'll be a fraction of what the White House is actually asking for. Um, which I would count more on the side of not passing aid to Ukraine. But I, but I, I think, yeah, I think that's what I would expect. Either they'll do nothing or they'll give a, a, a unrealistically low number that, you know, they can characterize to some people as if they, they did do something, you know, but, but it won't be realistic. Gotcha. I, I think what's going to happen is the Biden administration kind of knowing this will, will ask a little bit high and this sort of in a little bit of political theater, uh, the house will, will go, lower, which will be kind of close to what the Biden administration was hoping for in the first place. There will be all sorts of oversight uh, provisions that I think maybe would be not a bad idea in the first place. And so I, I just don't see, I, I really don't see uh, Republicans in Congress uh, not supporting Ukraine against Russia. That's just, it's hard for me to envision. And I'm sure you hope I'm, I'm right about that as well. Of course, I do hope you're yeah. right about that. <laughs> All right. I should point out, though, that the House will be very active. They're going to be passing a bunch of bills. They just won't go anywhere. There has been, in fact, a ton of activity already. Something like to, to this point, it's only been a few weeks, there have been 378 bills introduced in the House. And I think, well, zero in the Senate, if we, we're not counting resolutions, I think there have only been nine resolutions introduced in the Senate as of today. So the House has been very, very active as it often is, but yeah, very little of that's going to see the, uh, going to see the light of day or the light of Joe Biden's desk, certainly. 
I'm, I'm glad they keep passing all these further uh, abortion restriction bills. I hope I hope they do that every day uh, in the next two years coming up to the next election. So and because you think that's going to end up really helping, uh, really helping Democrats in, in the uh, presidential oh, oh, yeah. election. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and I should point out when we talk about uh, crossover members and that's members who are in districts that were won by the presidential candidate of the other party. Democrats in the House have a pretty significant advantage. There are something like, I believe it's 18 Republicans who are in House members who are in districts that were won by Joe Biden in 2020. And only I want to say maybe it's five, three or five. I think it's five Democrats who are in districts that were run, won by Donald Trump. And that certainly has to play into the thinking of uh, the Republican leadership in the House when they try to position themselves for 2024. But 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 I think you think that McCarthy is far more focused on keeping power for the short period he might have it as opposed to being willing to threaten his speakership for the sake of longer term Republican gains in the House. Yeah, I mean, I don't think right. I, I think, yeah, certainly I agree with that. But I, I actually think that the, the center of gravity of the Republican base is to keep passing all these um, abortion restrictions and things like that. And so in this case, I don't think it's just a McCarthy issue. I think, you know, that that's who their voters are. That's who their Congress members are. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why um, they, they want to bring up and vote on bills um, that their that their constituents support and their members support. But I think that's uh, hopefully electoral poison in some of the districts, like in the four New York seats that they that they picked up. Um, that they that that if abortion can become the main election issue in those districts, then the Dems are going to yeah. get those districts back. Yeah, they, they might they might pick up uh, Santos's district again. I think there's a there's a reasonable chance yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of, of that happening. You know, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Santos won't be the nominee again. But he we'll, is. We'll, yeah, I hope, he is, I hope I, to pick it up. He he is fortunate, I guess, in the sense that he came in with such a small Republican majority because that has really insulated him. I, I think because. Uh, McCarthy and, and others in leadership are a lot less likely to not to to not get him on committees or to do other things. He's been put on uh, several kind of incons or small or less consequential committees. But uh, I think if uh, the, the, the balance of power were different, there might be more of a kind of a cracking the whip and more pressure on him to resign. But given the fact that he's kind of from a, I would think a bluish blue trending district that that's there's just not going to be that much pressure on them at least you know to resign certainly right right that's what i think too all right well that brings us to the end of our regular show but ken and i are also going to be doing a midweek supporter show this is it's going to be a continuation actually of the walk through the constitution uh sort of thing we're on article seven and eight this is the series that Ken and Trey started, and when Trey, Trey's been out for a little bit, I've kind of jumped in and picked up uh, with Ken here and there on that. And so that should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I should also mention uh, that we're thinking that the next time you hear Ken on the show, it'll be with Trey sometime in early February. So uh, that will be, it'll be great to have Trey back. Uh, I, I've, I've certainly missed him and I know a lot of listeners have missed him as well. So that'll be, that'll be a welcome, a welcome return. Certainly uh, we're looking forward to. All right. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And I should point out that if you are a supporter of the show, you'll be getting that midweek uh, episode. Well, midweek. And if you're not a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Supporters really make it possible for us to do this. And when you become a supporter, 
get all sorts of good stuff. You get the ad-free version of everything we put out. You get that supporter-exclusive show. You get access to our very active and very fun Discord group, and there's other stuff at other levels of uh, support. Check it all out. Go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can support us at Venmo. We're at politicsguys. You can also support us through PayPal. All of our support links are in the show notes every week, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're just not financially in a position to support us right now, totally not a problem. Send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that all set up to send out to you every week. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you can subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, and share episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, there are plenty of ways to do that. There's email, mail at politicsguys.com the Discord group, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links in the show notes. And as always, a very special thanks going out to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.